Well, friends, we are beginning a new sermon series today. And this is a series through the book of Jonah, and this is the first of about 10 sermons from me in the Minor Prophets over the summer. So the plan is to preach Jonah in five sermons, and then Habakkuk in three sermons, and Obadiah in two. So we'll be doing that together, God willing, over the coming months. The book of Jonah, it's a well-known book mainly for one reason. When you hear Jonah, you think big fish. We think that because of the Bible storybooks that many of us in God's kindness have been familiar with growing up. And we think that because of a flannel board near you, right? The question that we always ask ourselves, though, when we come to texts of Scripture that we are familiar with, we've thought this recently as we've looked at the parables of Jesus Christ. Did we get the point of Jonah? Did we understand the account of Jonah and how it fits into redemptive history? Did we understand it and what God teaches us about himself through the account of Jonah? what he teaches us about his character, what he teaches us even about his plan of redemption. Did we understand the account of Jonah and what it teaches us about ourselves, about God's people through history, and about God's ways with us, therefore? So there's a bunch of introductory overview material coming your way right now. So... The legitimacy of doing something like this when we're going to open a prophetic book is the fact that in explaining some of the context, in talking about the history of God's people, this is going to help us better understand the book of Jonah as a whole. So I plan to spend some time before we even launch into the text itself to try to help us understand the setting. On the book of Jonah, in a general sense... As you know, it contains some remarkable stuff. Not just the fact that a prophet was swallowed by a great fish, but there's also even an incident where the Lord causes a tree to sprout up in an instant to give Jonah shade and then takes it away almost just as quickly. Many remarkable things in this book. Due to this, there have been various approaches suggested to the book's interpretation. And I'm just going to get straight to the point. We should understand Jonah as historical and prophetic narrative. We should understand Jonah as historical and prophetic narrative. Jewish tradition regards the narrative as history. And even more importantly, Jesus very clearly references the account of Jonah as history during his earthly ministry. For example... These are the words of Christ regarding Jonah. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. History. Or... In Matthew's gospel, even more words are spoken, more detail. Christ says there, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. History. Historical narrative. Prophetic narrative. That's what Jonah is. Now regarding the fish and Jonah's being in its belly for three days. This is one of countless examples of extraordinary providence recorded on the pages of Scripture. The Lord is the only true and living God. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He spoke the world into existence. There was nothing other than God, and then there's something through a word. He parted the Red Sea. He appeared to his people and then led them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He fed his people with manna that would fall upon the Israelite camp with the dew every morning. He caused quail to fall out of the sky, piled three feet high for miles. He consumed a soaking wet altar with fire from heaven. He caused a virgin to conceive. He walked on water. He fed thousands of people with a few loaves and two fish. He healed the lame. He gave the blind their sight. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And the tomb is empty. We needn't trip up over a great fish swallowing a prophet. Amen? Amen. Our God is in the heavens, beloved. He does everything He pleases. He has made the world and governs it usually through His ordinary providence. But as our own confession states, in His ordinary providence, God makes use of means, though He is free to work apart from them, beyond them, and contrary to them at His pleasure. So open your Bibles to Jonah. The setting of the stage continues. Continue to track with me. You'll have a moment to find Jonah if you're not familiar with the way that the minor prophets are laid out. Again, I'm spending time talking about this in this first sermon in the series because I want us to be able to connect Jonah to history in general because I think one tendency we have is we divorce redemptive history from world history. And we shouldn't do that. Because as McKenzie even said earlier, the Christian faith is based upon history and doctrine. Right? Christ died is history. Christ died for our sins, that's doctrine. But we need to understand that God has worked through world history to accomplish redemption. And so those things that we learn about in school the things that we read about in books, the things that we see even on movie screens about things that happened throughout the history of the world that are epic in nature, empires and wars and all of these things, the stuff we read about on the pages of Scripture is happening in the midst of that. And we lose sight of that sometimes. So I want us to connect those two things. 
I also want us to understand Nineveh and its significance because we won't understand this book well if we don't understand Nineveh and we don't understand Nineveh's relationship to Israel and why Jonah might feel the way that he does about going to preach there. I also want us to understand what is going on in Israel at the time that Jonah is alive because all of this will help us better understand what is written on the pages of Scripture in these several chapters. So Jonah is the son of a man named Amittai, and he was a prophet in the 8th century B.C., and he hails from a region of the northern kingdom, Galilee. So he was from the northern kingdom of Israel, and he prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. There may be some of you sitting here this morning, and you're saying, Brother, northern kingdom, what do you mean? So many in the room are familiar with King David and his son, King Solomon. After Solomon, as a result of Solomon's sin, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. The northern kingdom called Israel with its capital in Samaria, and the southern kingdom called Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. So after Solomon, you have these two kingdoms operating separately. So Jonah is from the northern kingdom of Israel, prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. He is doing this during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was king in Israel. So this is circa 790 to 750 B.C. During that same time, a relatively well-known king in Judah named Uzziah is reigning. This was a time, generally speaking, of peace, stability, and prosperity in both the northern and southern kingdoms. Particularly pertaining to the northern kingdom, the kingdom's borders were restored to what they were under David and Solomon during Jeroboam's reign. Now, we can read in 2 Kings about these things happening. It was not because of the king's obedience or the people's obedience that the borders were expanded back to their original state. It was because of God's mercy and steadfast love in keeping the covenant that he'd made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second Kings witnesses to that. And it was Jonah who had prophesied the restoration of Israel's borders. Listen to these words from 2 Kings 14. Jeroboam restored the border of Israel according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah had prophesied that the borders of Israel would be restored to what they were prior. Part of this era of peace and prosperity and expansion for Israel was a result of the fact that it coincided with a period of relative difficulty for the Assyrian Empire, which was the great Mesopotamian Empire of the day. The Assyrians had been an aggressive enemy against a number of different nation-states, including Israel the century prior. But by the time of Jonah, their energies were directed elsewhere. They had a number of revolts within their own borders. There were military conflicts outside of its borders, primarily with Syria. And then there was also widespread famine. So this meant that Assyria was not that concerned with Israel during this time. Hence the reason Israel is able to expand and prosper. Two other prophets were contemporaries of Jonah, Hosea and Amos. 
Both of them prophesied primarily in the northern kingdom of Israel as well. Now, what these prophets said is also important for our understanding. Outwardly, things were going well for Israel. Territorial expansion, population growth, commercial activity, economic prosperity, all of that's happening. But in reality, as we know from Hosea, as we know from Amos, as well as 2 Kings, the kingdom was falling further and further into a state of social, moral, and particularly religious decay. The worship of the Baals and other gods was prevalent amongst God's people. Especially important for our understanding of Jonah is the fact that Hosea, a contemporary prophet, had prophesied that Israel would be exiled and ruled over by Assyria. He says this at three different points explicitly in the words recorded in his prophecy for us. Amos also alludes to the fact that Israel will be exiled at the hands of the Assyrians beyond Damascus. So this is the setting. Just trying to put this together for us. This is the setting. A time of territorial and material prosperity in Israel. And yet a time of social, moral, and religious decline. The prophets Hosea and Amos were speaking into all this, and amongst other things, they had prophesied the Lord's coming judgment upon Israel through the means of Assyria. This judgment, of course, we know would eventually come. The northern kingdom of Israel, its capital city Samaria, would be conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Many Israelites would be deported, exiled, Gentiles, pagans, would populate the land. Many of whom would intermarry with the remaining Israelites. And this is where the Samaritans come from that you read about even in the New Testament. So again, why have we taken this time? Drive it down on a wedge for us. In the book of Jonah, the Lord commissions Jonah to go to Nineveh a great city, to call them to repentance. And Nineveh was the last capital city of the great Assyrian Empire. The capital city of the very empire that will conquer Israel is where Jonah is called to go and preach. So now that we've done all of that, I'm going to read Jonah 1, 1-3. We're just going to read the first three verses of the book today for our time together. This is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Amen. We thank God for his word. A 30,000-foot overview of the book of Jonah, if you're ready for it, it's this. The Lord commissions Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah flees. That's our text today. The Lord pursues Jonah. 
He preserves Jonah in the belly of a fish. He repents Jonah, and Jonah gives thanks. The Lord then delivers Jonah from the fish. The Lord commissions Jonah again to go to Nineveh. This time he goes. He preaches, Nineveh repents, and Jonah is angry. And then God teaches Jonah a lesson about divine love and divine compassion. That's the book. That's what we're going to consider over several weeks' time. But today, the Lord commissions Jonah to Nineveh, and Jonah flees away from the presence of the Lord. I have three points for our consideration in the remainder of our time. Point one is simply on Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. We're going to think about that for a while, because that's the thrust of these three verses. Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. The fact that Jonah fled is one thing. The fact that he explicitly sought to flee from the presence of the Lord is another. That's verbatim what's written twice in verse 3. You can see that in your text just as easily as I can see it in mine. We're told that he rose to flee to a place called Tarshish. Just briefly on that. Sometimes that word is used to designate distant Mediterranean coastlands in general. It's used that way, for example, in Psalm 72. It's used that way in Isaiah 66. There are some scholars that think that the southern coast of Spain is a possibility in terms of where this would have been. Either way, regardless of whether we know a particular location or not, what's the point? The point is that Jonah had been called by the Lord to go to Nineveh which was hundreds and hundreds of miles east-northeast of where he lived. And Jonah got in a boat to sail across the entire Mediterranean Sea in the opposite direction. Now, the question, why? Why did Jonah flee? Why did he flee from the presence of the Lord like he did? Perhaps he was overcome by thoughts of how hard and difficult the mission would be. The city, after all, that he was called to go preach in was huge. We read at the end of the book that it was large enough to have 120,000 infants or small children. Massive city. We know from historical records that it had walls 100 feet high and wide enough that you could put three chariots across the top side by side. Within the city walls were not just gardens, but fields for livestock. This place was huge. It was the capital of the great Mesopotamian empire of the day. Imagine one man, a prophet, arriving in such a city and proclaiming a message of repentance from an unknown God. Who would listen? And what armies even existed that could conquer such a city? To simply be mocked and ridiculed as a fool would have been a good outcome for Jonah. We could understand if all of this was why Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. But here's the thing. There's not a word in the story that indicates that this was in Jonah's mind. Not a word. 
Well, maybe Jonah was overcome by the danger, specifically, not just the fact that it'd be a difficult mission, but that it was perilous and dangerous to go into such a vast and wicked place. Maybe that's why he fled. I mean, the Lord, in verse 2 of our text today, calls the city wicked, says that its wickedness has risen to him. Consider the words of the prophet Nahum as well about Nineveh. What kind of a place is this? Woe to the bloody city, says Nahum, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. This is Assyria. This is Nineveh in particular. The Assyrians were known for their fearsome army. They were known for being cruel and ruthless warriors. You can Google that this afternoon and it will pop up really quickly. I mean, surely these people would just kill Jonah and add his body to the already massive stack of corpses. We would understand if Jonah was afraid to go there. But here's the thing. There's not a word in the account that indicates that this was in Jonah's mind either. So what's the reason? Why did he not want to go? Why did he flee from the presence of the Lord in order to avoid going to Nineveh. You can turn probably one page over in your Bible and put your eyes on chapter 4 and verse 2. Later in the book, Jonah is praying to the Lord. This is after he's already gone to Nineveh to preach and Nineveh has repented. And he says these words, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? So when I was still back in my land, is this not what I said? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He's going to tell us. Here's why I made haste to flee. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Is this not what I said when I was still in my homeland? This is why I made such haste to flee from the presence of the Lord because I know you. I know you're gracious. I know you're merciful. I know that you're slow to anger. I know that you're abounding in steadfast love. I know that you are a God who relents from bringing disaster upon people. And I don't want to go. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew the Lord. He knew that the Lord was not just sending him to Nineveh with a message of impending judgment. He knew that the Lord was sending him to Nineveh so that Nineveh might repent and be spared. And he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because of that. So deep is his hatred of these people. He knows from the outset that God would pardon the people of Nineveh and not destroy their city. He knows that's the Lord's character. He anticipates that he, a prophet, will be the instrument through whom the Lord would repent these wicked people. 
and he wants no part of it. The Ninevites, they were pagans, they were Gentiles, they were wicked. They had been enemies of Israel not that long ago. And they were a future threat to Jonah's people. So great was his hatred of the Ninevites, it seems that he was quite literally prepared to damn himself in order to prevent his enemies from being spared by God. Point two. I want us to consider briefly the humanity of Jonah and the humanity of the prophets, the humanity of God's people in general. You could insert brackets, the fallen humanity of Jonah and of the prophets. So the series title is Salvation Belongs to the Lord. That comes straight from Jonah 2.9. It's an appropriate title. Because the emphasis of this book is about the compassion of the Lord as a redeemer. But, there could be other titles offered for the sermon series. The title of this very sermon, The Prophet Who Ran Away. The title could be something else. The Self-Righteous Prophet, perhaps. The Hard-Hearted Prophet, perhaps. Or maybe the Prophet Who Hated His Enemies. None of this, just by the way, none of this is to slam Jonah. Whenever we talk in these terms, we should see ourselves in him. He was so prepared to even bring condemnation upon himself in order that the people that he hated would not be spared. God's people through history, even the prophets and significant figures, have been weak, have been blind, and have been hard of heart. In other words, they are just like you and me. If we rightly understand how to read our Bibles, if we rightly understand how to read the Old Testament, there is much encouragement to be found. Now, real talk, there is not a lot of encouragement to be found if we only read the Old Testament through the lens of the law and through the lens of moralism, where we just follow around the Old Testament saints and try to determine how to be like them or maybe not like them. Not a lot of encouragement there. But there is encouragement if we understand the Old Testament is a record of a gracious and merciful God dealing with a stiff-necked, blind, and hard-hearted people and redeeming those people. This is to teach us of how he will redeem us. In Jonah's hardness of heart, we see our hardness of heart. God is a redeemer to Jonah. He's a redeemer to hard-hearted wretches like us. The Old Testament is a testimony of the one true living and holy God bearing with his people in patience and steadfast love. This is to teach us that he will be patient with us and he will show steadfast love to us. This is like 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, where Paul makes it very clear that Jesus has been merciful and patient with him as the chief of sinners. 
and that Jesus has been patient with Paul as the chief of sinners so that all the saints might know that Christ will be patient and merciful with them. So as you see the patience and the steadfast love of God toward a hard-hearted prophet, take courage that this is how the Lord deals with us. The Old Testament is a record of how God uses broken vessels and how he draws straight lines with very crooked sticks. This is to teach us that God will build his kingdom and will save his people in spite of our best efforts to the contrary. Now, none of this, as you guys know, is to justify sin or to justify our stupidity. Rather, it is to comfort us that the Lord will save us. He began the work of salvation, and he will complete it, not just generally, not just ethereally, but in your life and your life and my life. Thinking about the humanity of the prophets. We're going to think a little bit about Jonah in just a minute, but think about another prophet, a well-known one named Elijah. Sometime read 1 Kings 17 to 19. Pretty wild set of circumstances in those three chapters. Elijah, in those chapters of God's word, predicted a drought in Israel, prayed for it, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He then raises a widow's son from the dead. There's this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. 450 of them are brought out. There's going to be effectively a contest as to whose God is the true God. And they, the prophets of Baal, you know, are trying to call down fire to consume what's on the altar. Nothing happens. Elijah has buckets upon buckets upon buckets of water brought out to douse the altar upon which he's going to call down fire. And fire from heaven consumes the whole thing. All the water is evaporated. The prophets of Baal are slaughtered. After that, Elijah prays again, and it rains for the first time in three and a half years. All that. And then Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, threatens Elijah's life. And he's afraid. He runs away. He runs for his life. He goes into the wilderness and sits under a broom tree. And he's so wrecked by the whole thing that he asks the Lord to kill him. The Lord, for his part, kindly pursues his prophet and speaks to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah continues on and even at one point laments that he is the only faithful man in Israel. This was his perspective. The Lord calms him down, gives him instructions, and tells him that he's preserving a remnant and that there are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, says James. Consider Jonah here. Jonah has not even a whiff of compassion for the people of Nineveh. None. He does not want them to be spared by God, as I've said, so much so that he disobeys the commission of God and flees as far as he can in the opposite direction. 
God condemn me so that these people would not repent. He's so blind as to his own condition that he resents God's character as a redeemer. As though he doesn't need redeeming. He resents that the Lord is a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger. As though he, Israelite as he may be, doesn't need that. He resents that the Lord is a God of steadfast love and a God who relents from bringing upon people the disaster they deserve as though he doesn't need that from the Lord. And after the fact, after he finally goes to Nineveh and the Ninevites repent, and God relents from sending disaster upon the city, Jonah is still angry. As I've alluded to already this morning, the compassion of the Lord is a significant theme in Jonah. So we will inevitably be considering it more in the weeks to come. But let's just say this for now. Thank God and praise God that He is more compassionate than we are. We so often love to depict ourselves as compassionate people. We will even compare ourselves to God and act like if we were in charge, it would be different. As though we are more merciful. As though we are more compassionate. Thank God He's not like us. We, for our part, are prepared to crucify our enemies. And God the Son said, I'm going to go and die for mine. That's point two. Point three, the final one. This is a consideration of, on the one hand, our ways, and on the other hand, the gospel. So our ways, the ways of fallen man, and the gospel. This is a reflection in particular from verse three. Put your eyes there. We're going to read this verse one more time. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. These words are intentional in the way that they're written. Do they not describe the ways of fallen man? Do they not describe the ways of our flesh as we sit here this morning? Jonah went down to Joppa and he went down into the boat away from the presence of the Lord. His course was downward. No doubt Jonah would have seen it differently. He would have thought that he was doing what was good for him. Doing certainly what was good from his perspective. He was improving his life. It was better to flee from the presence of the Lord than to do what the Lord had said in this case. We've seen this movie before. You've maybe seen it in your life. I've seen it in mine. You've maybe seen it in the lives of others that you love dearly. It seems better to us 
to flee from the presence of the Lord than to do what God has said. Saints, the Lord is upright and never sins. He is pure. He is holy. He is completely and only good. So therefore, any way that is away from Him is a descent into sin and ruin and misery. It might not look that way initially. The seas might look calm. The ship might look attractive and solid. The thought of the journey might be relieving or even exciting. But make make no mistake, the trajectory is downward. We are masters at suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We are very skilled at justifying whatever we want to do. And thinking ourselves wise, we become fools. The downward language, though, is not the only language for us to observe from verse 3. You see there that Jonah goes down to Joppa, he finds a ship, and then we read that he pays the fare and goes down into the boat. Again, we're meditating on Scripture, the truths of God's Word. Going our own way, friends, is costly. We pay the fare. This is true for those who sit here this morning trusting Christ, and you know that you're in a season right now where you're just doing you. Going your own way is costly. This is true for those who sit here thinking, you know, I don't think I've ever trusted Christ. I don't really understand myself to be a Christian. And you know that your life has always been about going your own way. Going our own way is costly. Consider Jonah. He paid the fare, the full amount, but he never got to where he wanted to go. And he didn't get a refund. Not only will going our own way cost us tremendously. We will never get to where we want to be. We will never arrive at the place for which we set off. Contrast this, though, with the invitation of God. Come, everyone who thirsts, he says. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Contrast how costly it is to go your own way with the pronouncement of God at the end of it all. It is done, he says. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. When we go our own way, we pay the fare. When we go the way of the Lord, He pays the fare. Maybe you sit here today not meaning to go your own way, necessarily. 
Maybe you sit here desiring to honor the Lord. Your faith is in Christ, but deep down you're haunted. You're haunted by the thought that you need to do enough for God that he would be happy to welcome you into his joy forever. You're haunted by the thought that you need to live a spiritual enough life that he would, in fact, find you righteous when it's all said and done. You feel that you need to pay a portion of the fare. Well, friends, let's reason together from the Scriptures. The only ones who will ever be justified by God are those whom God judges to be without sin and to be acceptable on the basis of their righteousness. Without sin, acceptable on the basis of their own righteousness. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water? Surely, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who can stand before his indignation? Friends, we will, when it comes to standing before God, we will never pay the fare. Not any part of it. And stand before him. We are justified, the saints of God, those to whom he will look and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Those of whom he says, fear not, little flock, it is your father's joy to give you the kingdom. The saints, we are those who are justified in the sight of God, not on the basis of our own innocence, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but based upon the righteousness of Christ that's counted to us and based upon the remission of our sins in Jesus' name. It's not because of anything we've done. It's not because of anything we have abstained from doing. We have not paid the fare. We have received from God's bounty all that is necessary for eternal life and blessedness. The fact that our sins are forgiven has nothing to do with how we may feel about our sin. We will never be contrite enough. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. We are forgiven because Christ has paid the debt we owe. Period. We are forgiven because Christ stood in our place as our substitute to take the wrath of God and the punishment we deserve. Period. We are absolved of guilt 
because Christ stood in our place as our representative and was pronounced guilty for our sakes. Our righteousness with which we would stand before the Lord at the end of history. It's not ours. It's Christ's. It's given to us. We don't earn it. We don't do it. We receive it by faith. We don't pay for this. And what's more, we don't pay God back for it either. Once given. We live from it. We live in light of it. We live transformed lives. All that's true. And we are not paying God back for what Christ has done for us. Can't be done. Consider the words of Paul in Romans chapter 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Not that he doesn't have any sin, but that it's not counted against him. Not that he doesn't have iniquity and transgression, but that it's been forgiven by God. There's an inherent contradiction between working and faith. Where there's working, there's wage. Where there's faith, there's gift. This is important for us to understand because the traces of sin, they remain in us all. So our justification before God must be something entirely different from the simple transformation of our lives. We are not justified by faith because being regenerated, we are righteous by living spiritually. At any point in this life, so hear this, rejoice in it, one. Hear it, two, and let this produce compassion for everyone we have interactions with. At any point in this life, we would stand liable to the judgment of death before God if our works are in view. May we be humbled. May we look to Christ only. And may we extend compassion. No one, even the most holy of us, if we were to take a poll and we were to say, who's the godliest person at this assembly? Even that person, the holiest of us, will find nothing in his or her works on which he or she could rely. Nothing. Christ has given us everything in order to meet the judgment of God. Jesus, after all, paid it all. Not some, not a lot, not most of it, all. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
Beloved, our righteousness resides completely in Christ's obedience, not our own. May we have faith to trust that and rest in that. And I promise you, if we believe that and live in that, it does not produce bad fruit. It produces good fruit. And having given us everything that's His, Christ tells us that He will raise us up on the last day. He tells us that He has gone to prepare a place for us and will surely bring us there. Our ways, our ways of thinking, our ways of acting, our ways of living, they cost us. We, should we go our own way, will pay the fare and never arrive. But even as it pertains to God, when we attempt to pay the fare, it's a fool's errand. Because through faith, we have been united to Christ. And being united to Christ, we are freely counted righteous and we are freely given an inheritance that we did not have before. We bring nothing, we confess our nothingness, and we receive from Christ all that we lack. He pays the fare. And He will see to it that we get to where we're going. Amen. Let's pray.